Late one evening in January 2013, a group of men carrying Kalashnikov rifles approached another man. Their faces were hidden behind balaclavas, and they smelled of alcohol. It was the height of the Syrian civil war, and the group were supporters of President Bashar al-Assad's regime. They arrested the man and handed him over to Syrian Air Force intelligence officials, who detained and tortured him. A Dutch court recently convicted one of those masked men involved in the arrest, known in court papers as Mustafa A., of war crimes and crimes against humanity. The verdict is the first time a Dutch court has convicted a defendant who supported Assad's regime during the civil war. And it's the latest example of how courts across Europe are playing an active role in holding perpetrators of atrocity crimes to account. This is the Just Security Podcast. I'm your host, Parash Shah. Joining the show to discuss the case and its implications are Fritz Streif and Hope Brickelman. Fritz and Hope work with the Nuhonavik Foundation, a nonprofit organization which helps to secure justice and reparations for civilian victims of war and conflict. The foundation played an active role in this case. Hi, Fritz. Hi, Hope. Thank you so much for joining the show. Welcome. Hi. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, pleasure to have you. And thank you so much for joining to talk about this important case that has recently come down in the Netherlands. To get us started, could you tell us about the victim in this case? What happened to him during the Syrian civil war? So this is, as any of the cases that have gone to trial in European courts regarding the Syrian civil war and and will still go to trial for for a long time, you know, is really, I think, a prime example of how it's just like a small puzzle piece of the of the whole story. Um, every story has its has its own, you know, profile. In this case, we're talking about a Palestinian refugee camp just outside of Aleppo, uh, the Al Nairab camp, one of those camps that it's been there for decades, of course, and, and has sort of morphed into uh, a village. And um, when the uprising started in Syria, um, sooner or later, it also uh, arrived in the Aleppo region. And, and um, uh, this was, you know, uh, various groups yeah, really taking to the streets and demonstrating uh, against uh, the regime of, of Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, who, who had inherited uh, the presidency from his father, Hafez al-Assad, that had um, been a dictator there for, for decades. Um, the uprising became more and more violent and, and, and uh, developed into a, into a civil war. And um, that is uh, kind of the, the framework in which the facts of this case occurred in, in late 2012 and, and early 2013. The victim in this case is um, a man of, of Palestinian origin. The time of, of the facts, he was in his late 50s. Um, so now he's in his late 60s. He now lives in Sweden, and what's now been published also in the court's decision, he was active uh, in a sort of NGO committee within the camp that was trying to keep uh, the neutrality of the camp when the war started, especially the youth in the camp outside of the conflict. Um, that's what we know of the victim, and, and that's also you know, part, of, part of the reason um, we believe he was targeted. Another important 
dimension of this case is the role that the Syrian community across Europe played in actually getting it off the ground. What role did civil society play in this case? Yeah, I, I think I think it's a very broad role and an extremely important role if you if you look at these cases specifically. Um, one thing that you know they do is they're amazingly is their outreach to the Syrian community and the broader community um, is extremely well, right? They're they're accessible. Um, people, especially Syrians, know where to find them. Um, and they have this trustworthy relationship with civil society organizations, um, collecting evidence, documenting. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, that is the relationship then with, with the Syrian community. On the other hand, these NGOs doing this kind of work, um, they build trustworthy relationships with the uh, war crimes units and different mechanisms in order to make sure that this evidence is collected and is eventually uh, able to be used in, uh, in courts. I think playing that role is essential in, in really kind of transforming um, the process from, you know, individual f- evidential facts to, uh, to actual cases. One of the other unique features of this case is the fact that the public prosecutor's office actually took a number of steps to request measures that increased access to participation, both from victims and the general public. So what were some of those measures? What did they look like? I think the prosecutor's office here deserves mentioning that um, that you know we have worked with from from an angle of civil society for for many years to increase these types of what we find uh, very important elements of uh, of this this type of uh, domestic international criminal. Uh, Procedure right, victim participate, active victim participation to to enable that more, um, enabling access to the courtroom for the general public, especially uh, in this case that of of the Syrian general public. Um, we can go into how that was eventually done, but um, to compare with other cases that have been going on in other countries, um, some some of your listeners might know the the uh, the groundbreaking historic case in Koblenz in Germany, which which, which saw the the first. Uh, criminal trial against uh, Syrian regime officials uh, starting 2020. And it, it all happened during the pandemic, which definitely didn't um, didn't help. But the court um, showed very uh, little to close to none flexibility in terms of um, enabling access to, to the courtroom and to the proceedings for, for the general public. Um, there was no access to translations into Arabic for, for those uh, in the public gallery. When you talk about victim participation, that that was definitely a highlight, I think, in Koblenz. There was a lot of victims that participated officially. Now, um, going back to our case, maybe Hope, you want to you want to describe how how we, I think, did take those lessons also from you know from other cases abroad and 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 try to together with the prosecutor in 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 coordination in communication also with our Syrian civil society partners how we successfully uh, managed to put that into the, into place in this case in, in The Hague. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, if you explain it, it sounds very easy, but um, actually it, it was kind of a process, right? We, um, we supported um, the fact and the outreach to the community and telling them and explaining that um, the case, the trial case, the trial and the verdict would be translated 
So there was online access with translation. And I think that was extremely important in, you know, having this proactive um, and access to the court be facilitated by, um, um, by the public prosecutor's office and also the court itself. So what we really did um, there was have a coordination role or coordinating role in facilitating um, that access. So we made sure that that link um, or at least the registration of the link was available. Um, and making sure that, you know, our networks, our partners, our contacts, um, the Syrian contacts, um, and all of the, the groups that everybody was in, we really did our best to make sure that that was visible um, and that, you know, everybody was able to register. Um, I think, you know, the other thing that we, in addition to that, did was a answer and question to kind of give that over that oversight, and which was also translated. So I think, you know, having our press release, having our own statements and communications, everything that went out, making sure that that was available in Arabic as well, um, was also an, an added value to having access to information and having access to the court and the case itself. Those are such great steps, and they really do show the power of technology and how it can be used to increase access to courts and access to justice. Can this be a model for other jurisdictions? Should other courts be looking to this as precedent they can use in their own cases? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think in terms of these cases also being international, um, international crimes cases, um, the suspects, um, but also the um, survivors and vi- victims and witnesses are from across the world, right? So having access to that through a simple online link, um, which is a daily part of our lives nowadays, um, is something that I think is shouldn't be missed within these trials. It should be something that should be always incorporated if you do, you know, consider access to justice for uh, for survivors and victims in the, the communities. And it's not that you know, it's not that that hard. I think what the what the what the court here has shown is is that. There are ways to safeguard the uh, the privacy and the security of of anybody that wants to participate through a, a video stream uh, link, um, and at the same time open that possibility for anybody that is interested uh, to dial in from from anywhere in the world. Yeah, maybe maybe just one thing to add on to that uh, is that um, we saw that our communication around this case specifically and the registrations uh, were from across the world. Um, and a lot that were from the region. So I think that that was also one of our kind of target groups um, and for us a successful outcome to see that it actually was um, uh, Syrians that registered to have online access um, to listen to the case um, and that actually also um, used the interpretation um, uh, possibility. We are in touch with quite a few Syrians here in the Netherlands um, so for them to actually physically go to the court, um, be seen there is also, you know, could potentially be a security risk. So for them to be able to have a safe link um, to watch f- within the safety of their own home was an added value of the online uh, access to the case. Right. That type of online access has so many benefits. There's all types of reasons why 
folks might not want to attend in person, but they can still gain access to the proceedings. This is the first time that an individual who supported the Assad regime has been convicted of war crimes and crimes against humanity. And there have been other prosecutions in the Netherlands of opposition groups and other armed groups. What does this verdict mean for the victim and for the Syrian community? I mean, it means it means so much. And, and just before we entered the courtroom to hear the announcement of the decision, I was talking to to two of our key, you know, Syrian partners in this, and, and they were also zooming in on this element, which is, of course, it's an individual case. And it's one of those, you know, many puzzle pieces that when you put them together, you get, you get, a, pic, you get a picture of the entire um, very complex landscape of atrocity crimes that, that have occurred in Syria. But it's also because the indictment included the, 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 you know, the charge of crimes against humanity, it's also, in an indirect sense, um, an indictment of the Syrian regime itself. Uh, because to, to prove that the, the acts of the accused um, took place within the framework or as a crime against humanity, the prosecutor had to prove, and the judges uh, in this case accepted uh, that evidence, that the accused committed these individual acts as part of a widespread or systematic attack against the civilian population, which can logically only be perpetrated by the regime itself. Um, and so uh, the fact that the court accepted the charge as indicted of the individual acts having been committed as crimes against humanity means really means a lot to uh, to all Syrian uh, victims and survivors. Um, uh, you could you could feel that and 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 you could see that you could see also the relief and and uh, in 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 Syrian in, in our Syrian partners' faces um, when when this was uh, indeed um, confirmed by the court. I'm in some Syrian groups, some Syrian Facebook groups, uh, reading comments. I know that they were really happy with the verdict. Um, they were not happy about the sentencing. Um, they thought that it should be much, much longer than 12 years. Yeah. And Fritz, as you mentioned, this case is part of this bigger puzzle, right? This is one piece of a puzzle that's playing out across Europe as many national courts really take on this role of trying to address across atrocity crimes that happened outside their borders against defendants who are not their own nationals. And that's using a legal concept called universal jurisdiction. So how does universal jurisdiction work? What role has it been playing lately in these types of cases? Universal jurisdiction is this idea that there are uh, those most grave crimes that we, that we know of genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, that they are so grave that they concern all of humanity. And national courts should have jurisdiction over them, even if uh, the defendant in the case isn't the national of that, of that state, uh, the crimes weren't committed in, on the territory of that state, and the victims uh, are not nationals uh, of that state. But because of the gravity of, of it, really shocking uh, humanity as a whole, uh, that jurisdiction should... should uh, should still exist for such a, a national court. Um, there's different levels of universal jurisdiction um, in different national laws. Um, especially, they have been especially actively used in, in European countries in the, in the past years. And 
have some some would argue have really seen a renaissance of of being uh, applied um, in the framework of Syria cases, and that has everything to do with the fact that the international avenues have have been blocked. Um, uh, the United Nations Security Council that could re- could have referred uh, the Syria file to the International Criminal Court was blocked by vetoes uh, by Russia and China. Um, a specialized Syria tribunal uh, has has never uh, been established for for the same reasons, um, and so that's why you know national uh, jurisdictions have stepped up, and 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 Syrian and international civil society have really started focusing on using that as uh, the legal arena where trials are possible. Um, in the Netherlands, we don't have a pure form of universal jurisdiction, which actually means that there are certain criterias to trigger jurisdiction, um, which is sometimes a little bit difficult, but also makes the prosecutorial strategy more focused in the sense that here in the Netherlands, the um, perpetrator needs to be on Dutch soil to trigger investigations. Um, So that is something that actually makes it a little bit more difficult, but at the same time, this is what we have to deal with. And what type of precedent could this case set in the Netherlands itself? In the Netherlands itself, it's, um, it's, it's of course, as it is the first, uh, the first trial against a regime-related accused, um, this is the first example of, of how uh, such a case can be uh, situated within the, the overall context of the Syrian uh, war, um, how a case concerning charges of crimes against humanity, how that can be argued that, that, um, that certain individual facts took place within that framework of, of what the regime um, uh, perpetrated against its, its own civilian population. Um, it's interesting, in the, in the decision of the court, they, they actually address this uh, explicitly and say, um, of course, uh, this decision or any decision will be a um, you know point of orientation for for any future uh, similar cases, but that every case, of course, is super individually specific on the individual cases of the, the individual facts of that case. I think hope maybe you can say something about this this interesting part of this case where they also qualified the militia that the accused uh, worked with. Maybe just really quickly on the um, president setting. Um, the court decided that the um, Liva Okuts can be um, categorized as a criminal organization contributing to crimes against humanity. So I think in that sense, it's very um, important to see that this is precedent setting also for other, um, other factions, other parties, other, um, you know, if it's state or if it's opposition. Um, it's, I think it's a very good classification of what is possible or what else is possible when trying to be a little bit creative in, in getting these cases um, indicted. Yeah, that's all such helpful context. And hopefully this case does set precedent in the Netherlands. What are some of the challenges around these types of cases? So besides the the, the few challenges that we discussed on jurisdiction, I think one thing that's very important to to continuously you know have the back have in the back of your mind is 
um, the challenge of evidence collecting. Um, so one thing, you know, the linkage evidence between survivors, victims, and then the facts of the case, which have happened in, um, in Syria, far away from the Netherlands, um, is something that we, we really are uh, very mindful about. You know, collecting this linkage evidence in, um, in these cases ex- is extremely difficult. So this is one thing that we as an organization, but also as, you know, other civil society organizations and our partners um, try to, to also reach out to the community and build this, again, this trust relationship, build this safe place that they can share their testimonies with us. They can share information with, for instance, our war crimes unit here in the Netherlands. Um, and that, you know, the Dutch really are doing their best to make sure that these cases are up and running. And if I can just add to that, you know, the, this challenge that Hope just described goes to the simple truth that these cases are extremely heavily f- based on witness testimony, right? Um, witnesses that have fled uh, from, from the, 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 the place where the crimes occurred, in this case Syria, often are traumatized and, and um, uh, live in different places around Europe and, 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 and have to be interviewed um, uh, w- with the help of you know, mutual legal assistance requests between jurisdictions. And, and, um, and uh, as we all know, you know human memory is, is flawed and is not, uh, especially after many years, um, have passed and, and, and trauma has had an effect. Um, these are fragile cases. And um, that's where we also see our role come in, right? We, that's why we do uh, so, some of the work uh, that we do in supporting the victims and the witnesses in these cases to make them feel comfortable, to, to make sure that they have all the support they need legally, logistically, uh, but also psychologically when needed. Um, because you, you never know what, what, a, what a witness or, or a victim that might play a central role in, in such a case might decide uh, along the way in, in, for example, not wanting to, to take part anymore in, in a case due to personal circumstances um, or, or, or other reasons. Um, and for the police war crimes units and the prosecutors working on these cases, that's a big challenge. That's a big risk as well. And that's where we try to support the cases in, 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 our, in the best way we can to make sure that, um, that they actually um, are successful when it comes to, to a trial. And yeah, we're, we're happy to, to, to be playing our part in, in, in supporting that. And this time, luckily, it, um, it worked out quite well. Right. Complicated cases, fragile cases, important cases. Looking ahead, what should we look for next in terms of where universal jurisdiction is going in Europe and where these cases are headed? Um, I think Fritz and I are both smiling uh, <laughs> because they're, they're definitely, if, if I could just um, reply to the Dutch perspective uh, or here in the Netherlands, there definitely are um, universal jurisdiction cases coming up here. Um, so that's something that we can, we can share um, on uh, different countries, different conflicts. Um, and, and I think, you know, without saying anything specific about the cases, it's, this is, this is a trend that we need to support as a community, as an NGO. Um, and, and I think also, um, based on our experience, um, is also supporting other countries and other jurisdictions, right? 
Uh, we have quite a few survivors, victims, witnesses here in the Netherlands that are Syrian, um, but they have jurisdictional links to other countries. So I really think, you know, building, continuing to build those relationships and supporting other war crimes units um, and other mechanisms also is one of my uh, advices that I would uh, I would give and and also for us to to keep an eye on. You know, uh, w one one maybe note of caution is, of course, that um, uh, we should remind ourselves uh, that this is not the the the, the answer to to everything uh, in international criminal justice, right? The universal jurisdiction is is one tool. Um, I think our Syrian partners uh, continue stressing that as well with every decision that that comes in and that is and that is positive. They say, you know, this is only one step. Uh, this is not the answer. This is just this is just an opportunity that that um, that we have, and that that is why it's worth uh, making use of it. But at the end of the day, um, you know, uh, when you, for example, look at uh, what, what Syrians that we, we talk with uh, that are not necessarily part of, um, of, of, you know, the NGO uh, civil society landscape, you know, they will, most of them will still say, well, uh, you know, until the day that, that, that Bashar al-Assad is, is standing trial, be that in The Hague or, or elsewhere, or even in Damascus, um, justice will not be served and that that remains the the, the big goal and uh, some would say that we are pretty far away from from that day um, others are more hopeful and 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 uh, might you know point to the arrest warrant that the French uh, uh, magistrates just issued uh, last fall for President uh, Bashar al-Assad and his brother and and two other high-ranking officials of the chemical weapons program. Um, and then, you know, the other side will say again, well, you know, there's an arrest warrant, but they will never be arrested, so what is that worth? Um, if you ask me personally, um, I do believe that Bashar al-Assad will stand trial sooner or later. And uh, what gives me hope here is um, the unpredict unpredictability of political... Uh, developments. Uh, we've seen that with other historical figures in the past, with Milosevic uh, as one example, uh, Charles Taylor another example. So it is it is possible. I um, I have not lost hope there. Is there anything else that you'd like to add that we haven't touched on yet? I think we did have one more point from our perspective as a uh, NGO supporting survivors and uh, and victims of international crimes is the um, the role of these individuals in a compensation or reparation scheme without getting too much into the technical details of that that's something that I would at this moment would like to recommend states especially european states to to be a little bit more proactive and mindful in what their role as state should be you know criminal accountability in a in a in a in a criminal court of law can be a major factor in uh, perceiving justice for communities for for direct victims but it's not it's not the only uh, factor that that can play a, an important role in in that there's more to what is just and to perceiving uh, that as justice helping victims access a broader sense of justice is part of our mandate and um, 
uh, in this case, we, we tried that with, uh, with a specialized lawyer in, in joining the case as a civil party uh, on behalf of the victim. And, uh, and the court found that claim to be too complicated to, to, to deal with within the, the criminal procedure of the trial because it's, it's, it is complicated. It's a, it's a tort. It's a civil law tort suit within the criminal trial. And um, when that, once that becomes a bit too complicated in terms of the facts, the, the criminal uh, judges in this case will, will throw out that part of the case and will um, refer you to a civil judge for, for bringing that claim, which which is something we're considering now, of course. Um, and this is a systemic question that, that we're dealing with. And, and there is there's space to, to grow and space to learn there still. We'll be following all these issues around universal jurisdiction, access to justice, accountability for atrocity crimes at Just Security. Fritz, Hope, thanks so much for joining the show. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having us. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Harish Shah, with help from Clara Apt. Our theme song is The Parade by Hey Pluto. Special thanks to Fritz Streif and Hope Brickelman. You can read all of Just Security's coverage of atrocity crimes and universal jurisdiction, including Fritz and Hope's analysis, on our website. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 